0: I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. We are in for a very unique, and very sacred podcast episode today. I want to make sure everybody is listening. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody, clients, caregivers, parents, spouses, partners, siblings. This is a podcast that needs to be heard. As you all know from the title, The purpose of this podcast is to hear information from recovered professionals. I decided to veer off path for this one and bring in somebody who unfortunately has the ultimate training of what could happen from an eating disorder. Today's episode is going to be taking place with Doris and Tom Smeltzer. They lost their beautiful daughter at age 19 to an eating disorder. And she had been struggling with behaviors of bulimia nervosa for only 13 months. Please, everybody, hear this message. Eating disorders are deadly. And sadly, we have two wonderful people that are going to share first hand experience with just that fact. Thanks so much, everyone. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I have to say that I think this is going to be, of all the episodes, one of the most sacred ones that you are going to be hearing in this podcast series. This episode, we are going to be listening to Doris and Tom Smeltzer. They are, now Doris has her master's in psychology. Tom also has his master's, although they are not professionals in the field in a traditional way, and nor are they recovered from an eating disorder. They are the parents of a beautiful daughter who passed away from bulimia nervosa. This is a very important episode. I hope everybody pays attention. I want everyone to listen with open hearts. I wanna first start by saying Doris and Tom, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: Yes, thank
0: you. Fantastic. So again, this is not the traditional episode but I feel that this is a message that absolutely needs to be heard. I think people need to know the truth about eating disorders. I think people need to know the severity. And I also think people need to hear Andrea's story because she suffered with behaviors for 13 months. And that is important for people to know. So I'd like to first start by saying that uh, Tom and Doris do talks all over to talk to family members, people that might be struggling, anything that they can do to get out there to support people with eating disorders and their families. And Doris, you wrote a book. It is so beautiful. It is called Andrea's Voice, Silenced by Bulimia. And the book is so powerful because it is a book that is written partially from Andrea's journal Which you found after she had passed away. And the other part is from you as a parent, basically giving the message, which is if I only knew then what I know now, I may have been able to do things to support Andrea a little differently, or as a family, we could have, or as a community, we could have. So I want to start the podcast by actually reading. A small part of your book, just again, as I said to our listeners, um, Andrea struggled for 13 months before she passed away. I think one of the other things that's so wonderful about this book is that you talk about. Things that were manifesting in Andrea years prior. So, people understand that one of the reasons why eating disorders take so long to heal because you're not just starting with the day that a behavior starts. And that's something I want to talk about. But I think the most important message that you have wanted to get across is that Tom and Doris, nobody ever told you that you were dealing with a deadly disorder when Andrea was diagnosed. So what I wanna do, and then I am going to let Tom and Andrea talk. What I wanna do is I'm gonna read a small part of the book. This is about midway through the book and you're driving down from Northern California to Southern California uh, for Andrea's memorial service at her college. And this is part of the book that this is something that happened while you were in the car driving. The morning we left Napa, the coroner had called to tell us that Andrea had not choked to death as he had presumed. His preliminary autopsy had not supported its asphyxiation. Tests still remained to be, to be run, but it looked as if an electrolyte imbalance brought on by purging may have caused our daughter's heart to stop beating while she slept. How could we make those who attend Andrea's memorial aware that an eating disorder was the cause of her death? Late the night before the service, we found the answers to that question when we discovered one of Andrea's poems, which begins, and I quote, I have an eating disorder. These were the words that you would use in the program. Andrea wrote her own explanation of what took her life. She just had not believed that it could kill her. Here is the poem. I have an eating disorder. It is not had or did or used to. It is present tense. I am learning. It is learning to love myself. It is learning to let others love me. It is surviving when they don't. It is that I damn well deserve that love. I am trying. It is trying to listen to my body. It is about ups and downs and all arounds. It is trying to give myself what I need. It is letting others give me what I need. It is trying to recognize the needs of others without hurting myself. I am going slowly. It is being patient and gentle with myself. It is going through the day, hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute. It is not being everything to everyone, not even myself. I am accepting It is accepting drugs as a way to heal myself. It is accepting the words depression, anorexia, bulimia as tools to describe, not label. It is accepting the help and care and fear of others. It is accepting food as a necessity, not an enemy. I am beautiful. It is beauty irrelevant of size or number or grade. I am alive. It is fighting to remain that way. I am pain. It is trying not to hurt myself. I am on a journey. It is laughing, crying, cartwheeling, eating. It is okay. I am okay. Unfortunately, Andrea passed away five months after writing this unbelievable poetry. I know that, first of all, as I said before that reading of your parts of that book, of your book, you had said nobody had told you this was a deadly disorder I think I'm just going to open with that and say, what, what are your thoughts? What would you like to say about that for listeners to understand?
1: It would have been so helpful to know that this was a serious, deadly illness. If you think of um, planning the care for a child who's suffering with a deadly cancer, um when the parents are told this has the potential to kill, but here are the protocols available. Here's what we can do. It it, it does give the parent the idea that we need to sit up, pay attention, and take this seriously. Um, we had no, no concept that the eating disorder behaviors could kill her. Matter of fact, one of the early therapists that Andrea talked to two weeks after the first time she made herself throw up, told us that smoking cigarettes would be more harmful to her health than the eating disorder, the bulimic behaviors
0: ever could be. And that's just not true. That makes me gasp. That somebody would make a statement like that. In in all my years of being a therapist, I, and as somebody who has recovered from an eating disorder, it's the only ter- word words I can use. I'm gasping from that statement. Another thing that you and I had spoken about, Doris, is that similar to if your daughter had, or your son had cancer or some kind of disease that could potentially kill them, they would not say to you, and she or he could probably be cured in three months. They would probably say, buckle yourself in, you're in it for the long haul. this takes a long time. What were you told, or were you not even given any guidance of what to expect for how long steps you should be taking, things like that?
1: um it there was never an indication. Do you recall any? that this was that this was a marathon, not a sprint. No, um
2: you came to that.
1: Realization. And and actually I came to the realization as I shared with you, it was um let's see, how long? Um, six or seven years after Annie's death when when our our daughter Jocelyn um was hospitalized for Guillain-Barre, which is Um, a very rare autoimmune syndrome that causes complete paralysis with pain off the charts. Um, And she was in intensive care for three and a half months, um, completely paralyzed. The only thing she could move was her right eyelid. Um, And she was four months pregnant with her second child. And it was, I'm watching Jocelyn on life support, and just I, standing there, all of a sudden, I have this aha experience because I think it would be inconceivable for me to say to Jocelyn, "Could could you speed this up? You, this is taking too long." <laughs> um, and and what was the the most amazing thing is. Every professional that we came in contact with, and she had probably eight different specialists working on her simultaneously during the six and a half months she was hospitalized. And every single one of them said to us, this is a marathon. You need to have the mindset of a marathon because this is going to take a long time.
0: Can I just interrupt for one minute? Because what just came to my, my mind is what Andrea went through was almost similar, but you couldn't see it. So what you just said, Jocelyn was in pain. So was Andrea. Jocelyn was paralyzed. Andrea was as well. Yet, when you can see somebody's physical ailment and when, by the way, there's no shame attached, no there was no shame when Jocelyn was on life support, I bet there wasn't one person that you would have been embarrassed to say, and forgive me for saying embarrassed, I, I'm, I'm not saying that you were. I know that parents come to me all the time. My own parents were horrified of what people were going to think of them because they have a child with an eating disorder. And it is, I, I don't know if if it's okay that I compared the two, but both paralyzing and incredible pain and look at how culturally we treat them so differently. It, that
1: what you've just said just sums it up in a nutshell. And I mentioned to you how just... A little over a year ago, Jocelyn is now wearing leg braces as a direct result of the complications from guillain She can no longer walk on her own without falling, without leg braces. She's had to have surgery for both hands to regain the use of her hands, again, a complication of guillain This is 12 years later. So the marathon, the marathon metaphor I would have been so much more helpful, don't you think?
2: Yes, because we all thought we could get into therapy. And, well, Andrew even commented, you know, after summer, this will be taken care of. It'll be over. And not true. Nope.
0: And you know why it's not true because, and this is so well articulated in the book, Andrea's behaviors happened 13 months before she passed away, but the emotional shifts in life started happening. And so years ago, and so you are not dealing with from the day a behavior starts, you're looking at also- Her personality trait, the way Andrea perceived the world, you know, she had experiences. And I want to encourage everybody to buy this book, that when she was 14 and she went to study abroad in Spain, that totally shifted her, her outlook on life. So again, Andrea's behaviors didn't start till she was 17 or 18, but we're talking both Tom and you, Doris, had Cancer, heart problems, things that were so frightening for a young child's mind to be able to process. But again, we start, people start thinking if they're not educated in the field of eating disorders, when did the behavior start? What was happening at that time? Well, the day the behavior started could have been because she got a paper cut that day and that was just the final final what do you what do you tell parents then because i have to imagine that parents say to you first of all what's the secret what do we do how do we and how long how long should you know because we also live in a culture like how quickly how fast how you know before we can get this taken care of what do you tell parents that call you or come to you after you give these amazing talks that say, How do we do this? Because I'm assuming people ask that broad of a question. How do we do this? Um, they do. Um,
1: we're, you know, we're very honest to let them know that because so often the parents, when they do come to us and ask those questions, they're child has been suffering for years Um, and sometimes just as well sometimes for years with behaviors prior to the parents ever discovering you know that kind of thing so um i think we have to be really honest with parents because we we tell them we had 13 months from the first behavior to death, the learning curve was steeper than we were playing catch up for 13 months. Um, so we don't, it, it's hard for us to advise a parent whose child's been suffering for years, sometimes decades. And so obviously, they've gone from child to young adult or adults. So our advice is what we wish we had known that they're deadly and that the sooner the individual starts um, therapeutic intervention, the better. And symptom interruption. Yes. Because here's the other thing, um, which is that Andrea was in a therapeutic relationship two weeks after the first time she made herself throw up. She had a therapist here in Northern California. And then when she was going back to college um, in Southern California, Pitzer College, she had a therapist there. Um, That was one of our requirements. (laughs) Her symptoms, the binging, the purging, the over-exercising, all of the symptoms were not interrupted. They continued the entire time. And the only way a brain can even get ready to even attempt to heal is those symptoms have to be stopped. And then there has to be refeeding in a way that nourishes the brain so that the brain can do the work of actually comprehending what
0: a therapeutic relationship is trying to accomplish. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Tom, go ahead.
2: As people, we don't know what we don't know. And just recently now, we're getting a real solid taste of that with this worldwide COVID-19 okay. pandemic, COVID, excuse me, we've moved from coronavirus. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we, um, cultures throughout the world are struggling with this concept of a new normal. I would posit that an eating disorder presents a family with a new normal, one that we are not truly prepared to deal with, kind of like the surprise of a few months ago, or so it seemed.
0: Could you expand on that a little bit, Tom, when you say when families... Realize there is an eating disorder with one of their children or their siblings. What what kind what do you mean when you say there is a new normal?
2: Well, we didn't know much about eating disorders. And let me characterize that as none at all. <laughs> we, we, we were pleased that we thought we had a pretty good relationship with Andrea. In our ability to communicate and and speak openly. And and for the most part, that worked. But as children grow up, they are to gain independence. And part of that is their private lives. And as parents, our job was to prepare them for this change and help usher it in to the extent we're, we're capable. So Andrea would tell us things, and we would discuss. What she felt was going on with the eating disorder, Uh, you mentioned her journal before. Well, we didn't read any of the things she wrote unless she brought them to us and shared. That was a a choice on her part. Um, So one of the demands that she made of us is we would have our discussions and talk about what our non-negotiables were, the the counseling, the therapy, it, from such a, a, a lack of knowledge, we weren't quite sure what to argue for, but we were smart enough to figure out a couple of those. And one of the things that she asked of us as her non-negotiable was not to talk about the eating disorder with anybody. And she relented a bit, okay, our closest family members, her sister, um, <laughs> That that kind of thinking. And We felt so confident in her abilities and what we saw her doing that we agreed to that. You you talked about us going to that memorial service at her college and we were preparing with reading her journals and what info we could pull together to explain to the students that wanted to know why, what, how. It wasn't until after that ceremony, so many people came up and shared with us that they had a family member, they knew somebody, they personally experienced it, and we were dumbstruck that here's a resource. And if we had been willing to talk about it, there were resources that we could have discovered and sought out, shared with Andrea. We we did a little bit of that just on our own, but I've got to admit, she knew far more about this illness than I probably ever will. And so when when you, you mentioned, you know, what would we do different? I never agree to that. Yeah. I'd want to talk to any professional, any experienced person, just, their stories to know what works, what doesn't. Give it all a shot, because as you pointed out, this happens long before we see the the symptoms that become visible.
0: <laughs> yes, I. There, first of all, there's so many things that I want to say. Um, the eating disorder is really has a really smart tone, (laughs) doesn't it? Right? So I can only imagine that Andrea was very convincing. And probably, you know, I often say to my clients, if you put this much thought, energy, and brilliance into other things in life, oh my God, you are going to become the next president of the United States right now. Because it takes it takes a smart person, which I'm going to say because I had an eating disorder. It takes a smart person <laughs> no, to not. be able, able to manipulate. And I, and the thing is, the funny thing is, is, I don't even think that she was trying to manipulate you. She, it, the eating disorder was trying to manipulate her. The thing that is so unbelievable, the gift that the two of you did have, and I don't know if you know this, is most people do not call their parents and say, I just threw up last night. So it speaks to the relationship that the three of you had. And also Jocelyn, I know Jocelyn, you're, her, do- you're, her sister is very close. Um, th- that is a gift. The problem with that gift though is that you trust they're going to tell you everything. Exactly. And unfortunately. Yes. (laughs) That's like the like the red herring, right? Is that the expression that you know? Mm -hmm. So so you know, were there things that you unfortunately found out after that you also share with parents? Because yeah, talk to anybody and everybody. Were there other things that you unfortunately found out after? I think
1: um, what you just said about being able to, uh, she could express herself with us so calmly and so intelligently that we just trusted. I mean, just just trusted not knowing that she was being manipulated by an incle- incredibly clever illness and and there was no way we could trust um at face value what she so convincingly convincingly stated um that that the eating disorder demands that she subvert, lie, um, you know, protect. protect, that it, that she protect it from us, oh, uh, from anyone attempting to, um, to manage it.
0: <laughs> I say to clients all the time, when a client is sitting in my office and they get all angry and, you know, my parents don't trust me. And that's, I say, great. They shouldn't not, not yet. And I always, I always use my own self as an example, because I never want to insult a client and be like, you're a liar. I am not a liar. And I think I said this in one of the other episodes, I lied through my teeth in my eating disorder. And by the way, parents know that, that this you are harming your body with whatever the behaviors are if it's bingeing if it's purging if it's restricting over exercise whatever it is parents know this is harming the body that that they are trying so hard to protect they shouldn't trust you they're not going to trust you it takes a while that trust takes a while to get back and i say to clients Too bad, you have to accept that because your parents don't wanna see you die. I also wanna say, you have no idea. I I have probably bought, I, I don't even know, 10 or 15 copies of your book. Seriously, because every time I buy it and I keep it in my office and then I have a family session, I say to the parents here, you have to read this book. And they're like, oh, we'll get, I'm like, no, 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 don't worry about it. Go ahead, take this copy. Because parents do need to hear all of these messages. And something that I've often thought, and this may be controversial, um, but this is my philosophy. Um, I was 19 when I was diagnosed with my eating disorder. And the reality is, is that whole line of like, well, she's 18 and she's an adult, and you have to, my parents were like, Are you kidding me? She is our child, whether she is 19, 29, 39. That did not, and I say that to parents all the time because parents say to me, what do I do? My son or daughter is 18. I say, so what? You're the parent. I'm wondering if you came up against that at all with Andrea saying that she was 18 or whatever. Or how you would, would, what you would say to parents? Um,
1: I think, well, today, (laughs) um, we we would use whatever leverage we had. Now with Andrea, you know, we were helping with her college tuition, um, as well as her grandparents. So that was leverage. And she was 19, but we we had that leverage and she loved college. <laughs> so I always tell parents, whatever leverage you have, you use it. Um, and to get to be, um, it's okay to be a broken record. And it's okay to express the fear that this could kill you. And that I'm not going to stand by, I would not stand by and do nothing. Even if you were 55 and you had serious cancer and you refused treatment, I'm going to step in and I'm going to say, look, we can help here. If it's because you don't have the finances or the medical, whatever, to get that treatment, we're going to find a way together. Because we are not going to stand by and witness you kill yourself.
2: Uh, Another thought I've had of of what I now willingly share with parents for uh, uh, as my learning curve kept, steepening and and I and I would get little bits um, and there was this common cultural concept that uh, eating disorders are a choice and that um, you you just decide to do it different I've said that at least once to Andrea early on that yeah just stop it well What I share with parents now that I've learned is that the eating disorder serves a purpose. It's not about the food. It may be about body image and a myriad of other things, but it serves a purpose to keep that individual sane and functioning. And it does need to be replaced. But you alluded early on to the embarrassment that is provided in our culture and the shame of of having one of these things well i've had depression it took me the longest time to to recognize that and and say yeah i don't know why it came and why it happened and yeah i take some medication but We are people. We are so different. We all have something. And for some, it's an eating disorder and it can be dealt with. And so as a parent, you've got to understand that it's not something your child is doing to you or choosing or choosing. And if their mind was working the way it used to before this insidious disease came into play, they would be on board with with a change. But right now, it is such a stranglehold. Anita had that great uh, metaphor in her book about the log. Oh, the
0: log metaphor that Anita Johnson, eating in the light of the moon. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes.
2: And so I'm sure you've shared that with people and on on your uh, uh, podcasts, because we need to come up with something that functions for the individual and it probably differs from person to person that allows them to let go of what's saving them to find somewhere else to be.
0: Yes. So I am going to summarize the beautiful metaphor that you're talking about. So Anita Johnston, who wrote "Eating in the Light of the Moon," she is an incredible author. Um, Anita is a beautiful human being. Anita talks about that she she uses this metaphors, basically saying, you know, you're in you're in a lake. You're floating along, you're in the middle of the lake, you can see your family and friends on the shore. Everything is, I don't mean everything is great now, I'm just sort of generalizing, but but then all of a sudden the waters get a little choppy. And you're like, huh, waters are a little choppy. Okay, I got this. But then they get choppier and choppier and choppier. And all of a sudden you're like, I don't know if I can swim through this. A log comes by rushing downstream and you grab onto it for dear life. The log is the eating disorder. So Now you're trapped in this situation where the log you think is saving your life, but at the same time, it is keeping you in this horrible current and nothing is changing. And on the other, back at shore, you can see your family, your friends, and they're all waving, come back, come back. And you're thinking, but if I let go of this log, I don't have enough strength to swim back to shore. So what do I do? Anita talks about clients need to slowly swim around the log, then grab back on. Then go out a little bit, then come back. It is petrifying to think of giving up the eating disorder, because as you said, Tom, it has a function. It is either spiritually protecting you from something, it is fooling you to think that it's giving you courage or confidence or whatever it is. And there is a fear of letting go of that. I love that you brought that log metaphor up. That is fantastic what do you think and just staying with this metaphor what was Andrea holding on to what was her what was the function for her eating disorder
1: I think for Andrea and I know this is not true for others it, it's so individual but for Andrea it really was about body image Um she had come to believe that if she changed the way she looked maybe she would be asked out on dates more often. Um, She went through high school without a date Um, and I think it was going off to college and having guys as friends but not something more Those were her words. Um, She was like, if I change my body, then maybe that's it. Because she knew she she was intelligent. She knew that she was, I mean, she had a lot of really good friends. But she wanted that something more. Um, And so that was, I think, the motivator. And then, I think, too, she and we were really surprised at how quickly she grabbed that log and really, I mean, within a matter of just a few months, it just, everything about her changed. It was just, that log was in control.
2: And Karen, earlier, you alluded to the the pre illness time, if you will, and there are just impacts that happen in life to all of us, and it's how individuals react for, uh, I'm sure, a multiplicity of, of reasons. I think another component for Andrea was fear, um, specifically in our case, fear uh, of losing parents because of our health issues, whether it was cancer or the multitude that. that we were blessed with well
0: what was that little thing you had like a quadruple <laughs> bypass or something yes. something like yeah, that yeah. or
2: we we went for the the whole five
0: yeah on that one. yeah yeah um, so okay i just wanted to make sure you didn't leave that out tom i love the way you were looking at doris but i was like hang on here <laughs> keep going
2: um, well she did save my life because when i went in with a heart attack and the doctors wanted to send me home to strengthen up a bit before we go in for surgery she um, confidently shared with them that if they let me out, I wouldn't be back. And so wisely they didn't. And I'm here today. <laughs> Thank you, Doris.
0: And I mean that seriously, that sounded a little cynical, but I yeah. meant it no.
2: seriously. Mm-hmm. And and I wish we could have done something similar like that for Andrea, but it's such a, a complex thing that is so difficult, uh, it does take the village, the team, all the the friends, family resources we can pull together and that symptom interruption and um, a a treatment modality that is being provided not just to make money for a corporate entity. It's got to take some commitment uh, and like here in Napa, we have a dearth of experienced qualified therapists that we could even refer people to when they call and, and say, you know, who should I talk to? And we can recommend some books and toss out some names and, and we're friends with a number of really competent people, but they're not easily accessible because they're not local. When, when, when Andrea. And we were having a discussion and we were, you know, doing our negotiation of what do we need and what she needed. We were in conversation with a a, a gentleman in Texas, and we were thinking, well, maybe we just all go to Texas, because he had sounded the best at the time for what we could find. And it looked like we were would probably have to, to mortgage the house to pay for it because therapy is not. Inexpensive, but it's that case of you 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 get what you pay for in a sense shoot when i buy tools if it's something i want to keep and use a long time you you buy the best and cry once (laughs) so parents have so much to juggle when they're dealing with this and for us i think it was trying to Help Andrea understand that yes, some of the things that happened in her earlier years led to some fear, Um, but we were doing the best we could to remain healthy and and we would just hope that she would too. And we gave in on one of her points, which she wanted to honor her commitment to House. house sit down in Claremont, California, where she was attending Pitzer College, and only to find out sometime later uh, that she could have gotten out of it, but her illness needed a protective environment where her parents would not try to assist her.
1: It was only Two weeks, that was all. So it's just two weeks she died at the end of the first week. So being left alone with her eating disorder truly led to... The death may have happened anyway, but it certainly
0: sped it up. I think one of the other things, or I wonder if one of the other things that gets so... Complicated in this is that when someone is walking through the world with an eating disorder, you don't see that 24 hours a day they are ruminating about food, weight, purging, binging, this, that. So, what you're seeing as parents are episodes you're seeing a bad day. you're getting a phone call that it was tough. So I think what people unfortunately miss is the intensity that was going like you and I also want to point out after you found Andrea's journal really understanding as she could put a smile on her face, the intense suffering. That is going on inside. And so that's really hard to see through because as we said earlier, it is a protective mechanism. So you don't want to show any of that pain. I never wanted anyone to know. I was also embarrassed with how much pain I was in. I was in so much suffering in my eating disorder that I was ashamed of that on top of my eating disorder. And I wanted to let the world think that everything was fine because I think I thought maybe I will convince myself that everything's fine. And so I think also, as parents, it's hard to really see what is truly going on. Also, going back to the fact that people are not always truthful when they're in their eating disorder, it is heartbreaking that she passed away while she was, first of all, just heartbreaking that she passed away. Um, And I think the important message or one of the important messages is this isn't something that you can say, just give it two more weeks, I'll, I'll be fine. Just let me, or I just need to get away. That's the main thing. It's that isolation. Oh, I just need to get away and gather my thoughts. never. (laughs) What, oh, the other thing that I was going to say, and forgive me, I just sort of backtracked a little bit. When you were talking about how Andrea, some of the function or the main function was body image and whatnot. i read something at the beginning of the book that horrified me. Tom, you were on the phone or maybe Doris with the police the night that they found Andrea's body and correct me if I'm wrong, did they say, well, she, from her driver's license, she looks pretty and thin, something like that. What, what was that? What was, what was said? This absolutely, I, 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 I gasped again when I read that. I thought, are you Kidding me? This is also what happens with eating disorders. We have a preconceived, we have a perception that eating disorders are anorexia. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Eating disorders come in every body, every shape, every behavior. And that police officer just reinforced. So, is that, am I correct? Is that what was said? yes yes um and that's and that's um the sadness
1: the thing that breaks my heart is that was 20 years ago and we were really ignorant then as well
2: oh i prefer naive
1: okay naive (laughs) but um we've actually hurt people in the community say those same sorts of words where first of all they might see someone um, who given our cultural definition of, of standard sized bodies which do not exist um, are on the, the large end of the scale and they can't believe that person can be suffering from anorexic behaviors starving themselves to death, um, that there's, we, we still hear the misconceptions about body size and personality and intelligence and all of that, because eating disorders still have tremendous stigma, shame, and misinformation that just clouds the picture.
2: I would add a comment here just from a male perspective. Um, some of us pretend that we understand women um, and maybe some of us do, but I, I, I was a professional educator and I was still ignorant about what might trigger a body image issue. And in reflection, I would think about how often did I tell Andrea how good she looked without a, a, a thought to how has she just received that comment is her mind really thinking oh he thinks I look good when I wear this article of clothing or when I do this behavior or who knows what but we never really know how someone else perceives what we think we are providing to build confidence, make useful suggestions, because we don't know about that pain that you referred to that's really going on in there or what someone else has said. And now this is added to it and that's added to it. And all of a sudden I'm not worthy. Might be their conclusion.
0: That reminds me, and Doris, I'm wondering if you can say what what you and I talked about on the phone the other day. So, um, Tom, you and Doris were in a documentary, "America the Beautiful," by Daryl Roberts, and I remember the two of you. I think you were standing right outside your house when you were talking about this. Um, Doris, you talked about what it's like to be a woman in culture, but also the responsibility that we have towards our daughters. By the way, we talk about our bodies. Do you remember that part? I do. (laughs) I think because you reminded me, (laughs) um, I, I recall
1: that, um, you know, I never insulted our daughters' bodies but boy I insulted my own and it didn't occur to me that even as a little person our daughters would hear and look and of course they got their bodies from us <laughs> so if I'm standing there talking about this fat belly or these flabby underarms or this this um flat chest or whatever it is I'm I'm ragging on about my own body um, then they're sitting there looking at us going what but my body's very similar to that one <laughs> you know it's just um, we just we really do have to become mindful of how we speak and what we say out loud and it is a practice
0: i will never forget that moment in that documentary it was very very profound i thought it 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 touched me it touched me because of my own experience and it is so true that we do live in a culture where by the way it's more common to insult your body than it is to praise your body. The insulting of your body is the norm, right? Like we were talking about the norm, the new norm. That is conversation that we just hear all the time in the background and we don't even think about it. And isn't that devastating? That that's the conversation that we expect to hear from people as opposed to look at this body. I Andrea Jocelyn, I gave birth to you from this body look at, you know, there's, there's another point in that documentary. Um, Oh, I can remember what is her name? Who is, Eve Ensler, who, sorry, I just like yelled into the microphone. Sorry, listeners. When Eve Ensler, who wrote the vagina monologues, is talking about her trip to Africa and she is walking around this village with these women and Eve makes a comment like, oh, my stomach, like it's a little bit. And this woman was like, what? This stomach, it is big. It is beautiful. It has birth children, these arms, you know, they can help me climb a tree. And then the woman says, and these legs, I can wrap them around a man. And Eve goes, okay, okay, that's it. But it is unbelievable. Unbelievable how in Western culture, how we view our body. That was also a great part in the documentary. I loved that part. Yes, it was. And I love the part
1: where Eve talks about how the woman woman from the village in Africa says, Eve, look at that tree, do you like that tree? And then look at that tree, do you like that tree? Well, do you say this tree isn't pretty because it doesn't look like that tree? That tree isn't pretty because it doesn't look like that tree. You're a tree. I'm a tree. We've got to love our trees.
0: (laughs) There's so many kernels that I I feel that that didn't get out in the world that that I just, I thought for sure, maybe they just touched me so much because I had an eating disorder and I work in the field of eating disorders, but that was a really powerful documentary. Um, And I'm just going to say it, America the Beautiful by Daryl Roberts. Um, I thought that was very powerful and also a little hard to watch with some of the surgical things that they talked about, but shows the the degrees that we go to men and women for their body um, i i there's there are so many more things that I want to talk about i I swear i and I think I said this to you earlier when we first started talking before we started recording i I wanted to read the entire book on this podcast. I just wanted to say we don't need the two of you. I'm going to read the listeners this book because it is beautiful. I I think what touched me the most was how beautiful Andrea was, her soul, how beautiful she is. I I believe that she is still here. Um her writing that came from her heart was absolutely beautiful. I I was so touched and so moved by everything. Um I also noticed Doris a little while ago that you're wearing your earrings, the dragonfly. Yes. <laughs> Can you speak to the dragonfly and then we're going to I hate to say this we're going to start coming to an end, but there are so many beautiful things about the dragonfly, little times along the way when you saw yeah. things. Um, I think the very first
1: time uh, was after we came home from the memorial in Southern California. The, the next morning when I woke up, um, I happened to look out our bedroom window. I was just standing at the window. And I... Something flashed by, caught my eye, and I started looking more carefully. And I realized that right outside our bedroom window, there were hundreds, hundreds of dragonflies. Um, and I'd never seen that many dragonflies in our yard before. Um, I, there was no nearby source of water. There was, I just, was stunned, Um, and it felt like Andrea was just stroking my heart, and just saying, hi, mom. And so we have associated her with dragonflies ever since. Um, And so, yes. They're, they're all over. I mean, I could, there's there's a dragonfly somewhere in every room in the house. Trust me. <laughs> yes.
0: yes. And it's on the cover of the book. And you have earrings and a necklace. And I feel like you have allowed us, you the two of you have allowed us into your your private lives by telling us all these things in the book about the time you saw the necklace and then the time you found the earrings that didn't even belong to the necklace and and all these times when Andrea was still with you and you know she still is
1: oh I, you know energy does not it cannot be destroyed and we are energetic beings <laughs>
0: Yes, yes, we are. I am going to close by reading another passage from the book. Before I close, is there anything else either of you would like to say?
1: I think just our sincere thanks.
0: Thank you. Thank you. My, I, I, I don't know if I want to say my pleasure, Um It's definitely an honor. Um, I will get into my thank yous after I read this passage. Um, And this is a passage. It's actually, I feel like it's the last page. I can't even remember. And Tom, you are up and you are speaking at one of the many presentations that the two of you do. And Doris, this is you. Referencing it in the book. At the end of one of our recent Andrea's Voice presentations, Tom attempted to express the importance of community and sharing feelings. He began by stating, It has been said, men think, women feel. The emotions that are ever present during our talks surfaced as Tom took a few deep breaths before he continued. Well, losing Andrea has taught me how important it is to express emotions and feelings. Indeed, as people, we need to share to connect. It is through community that we can heal. Tom's index finger reflexively pressed against his upper lip as he regained composure. With tears welling in his eyes, He glanced in my direction and declared, Doris and I are here with you because we have been transformed in how we think about food, weight, and relationships. His voice deepened and cracked. It took our daughter's death to initiate that transformation. This is why, Doris and Tom, I am honored to have you as part of this podcast. I am honored that you have allowed myself and all of the listeners to hear this story and hear what you're doing. You are trying to help people transform without having to go through the tragedy that the two of you went through. I myself am honored to keep Andrea's voice alive and her story, which is why I felt so compelled to asking the two of you to be a guest on this podcast. So from the bottom of my heart, I honor you and I just want to thank you both. Thank you for sharing your story.
2: And we thank you, Karen, for the work you're doing to get the word out in this community that we all are a part of.
0: Thank you. I would like to thank all the listeners for being part of this unbelievably special, special episode of Recovery Bites Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I will look forward to talking with all of you again next week. All right, everyone, take care. Bye bye. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites Real Talk with recovered professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. All right, everybody, be well, and thanks for listening to my bite for the week.